0: One thing that I continue to remind myself is things are never as good as you expect if you think back to 2021 and are probably never as bad as you expect, which is today. If you look at a public company, it's something like 60-40 debt to equity. If you look at their balance sheet, if you look at the Bessemer, you know, cloud 100 index, which is a good representation of the top. VC-backed companies, I think it's 98% equity, 2% debt. It's much better to be in a tailwind than to try to be the smartest person picking stocks or picking companies.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders coming to you from New York City. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with Billy Libby, CEO and co-founder at Upper90, and Connor Witt, Vice President at Upper90. 90. Upper90 90 is a hybrid fund that invests credit and equity in early-stage businesses. Launched in 2018, Upper90 has over $1.5 billion in assets under management and has backed fintech companies like Octane Lending, Mundi. Thracio and many more. In this episode, we discuss combining equity and debt underwriting and how Upper Ninety has built a team with two different skill sets under the same roof, what they've learned from working with the best credit-driven companies in the market, and what great founders have in common venturing outside of the US and why Upper Ninety sees a ton of opportunity in places like Latin America how electronic and quantitative trading in Wall Street led Billy to fintech and venture capital and a lot more. All right. Well, Billy, thanks for opening your doors. We're in the, in the middle of Midtown, Manhattan, right in the headquarters of Upper 90. How are you doing today? Wonderful. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for welcoming me. So let's do a, a little bit of quick intros before we start talking about all things FinTech, private credit, equity investment, and all that jazz. So Billy, tell us a bit about yourself and your background.
0: Sure. So I started my career in 2003 in electronic trading. And many people think of that as quantitative trading. And a lot of people ask, you know, how did you go from that world to the tech investing world. And I think the bridge is fintech in a lot of ways, because in electronic trading, you're looking at historical data. You're using that to try to predict future prices of stocks. And then you're using technology to do a lot of little events efficiently. And that's really what fintech does. You know, if it's trying to underwrite an individual borrower or a company and then lending it in an efficient way. So I've always really seen technology, helping reduce friction, and I've always wanted in my career to stay closer and closer to technology. And I've always felt it's difficult to take what you learned in the finance world and get credit for it in the tech world. And, you know, you can go and be uh, in the treasury department at Microsoft or a VP of sales at Stripe. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how I can take and get my skill set and apply to the tech world where real change is happening. I met my partner in Upper 90, Jason Finger, who started Seamless and Grubhub. And he basically with me said the real missing piece is the way startups have been financed is with equity. And sponsor credit, you know, comes in after you raise equity. And in the trading world, it's you're making the most efficient prices on the public markets. And Jason said founders are giving up way too much of their company because equity is kind of the tool. And as VC and growth equity AUM has gone up tremendously, you've seen direct correlation of founder ownership going down. And so we can figure out how to bring credit into the startup ecosystem earlier. We can help founders own more of their company. We can help founders have a lot more optionality. And they have a lot more ways to exit. And so I think that merging of Jason's world from the tech entrepreneur with mine in the trading world, let us think of a different way to bring a product to market, which I think has helped us do something different and has been valuable from founders perspective.
2: I've been here at Upper 90 for just under three years. I helped lead sourcing and diligence for new investments and then supporting portfolio companies post-investment. And prior to Upper 90, I was at CB Insights and helped lead the fintech research team there. Prior to that, I was at City doing corporate development for the consumer bank, and started out doing financial services and fintech
1: consulting. at as full. Well. So there's a lot of things we're going to talk about, but you know that transition going into VC at the end of the day, it's a different beast. Did you learn any maybe counterintuitive, any unexpected lessons your first couple of years?
0: For sure, and we're still learning. And <laughs> I think it's really important. One of my mentors, a gentleman, Ken Skicciana, who was one of the early partners at TA Associates, said, you know, what do you want to do for the next 10 years? And And I think, to me, that was being closer to tech and in the startup ecosystem. You see a lot of people that look at it in a much shorter horizon, like a trade. Like, SVB had its issue, and then all these hedge funds said, hey, we'll buy SVB deposits over the weekend. Like, that's not a business. Like, that's a trade. And I think what we've learned is... We believe the way startups are going to be financed will change. Like the VC market hasn't really evolved and it's just gotten bigger. It hasn't changed. And so if you look at a public company, it's something like 60-40 debt to equity. If you look at their balance sheet, if you look at the Bessemer you know, Cloud 100 index, which is a good representation of the top VC-backed companies, I think it's 98% equity, 2% debt. So I think the first thing is, like, it's much better to be in a tailwind than to try to be the smartest person picking stocks or picking companies. And everything we do now is captured in data. We see different Instagram ads. We see different Netflix home screens. And, like, our data has led to hyper-personalization of our life. And if you look at how companies are financed, it's still the same. And so I, I just think I've learned that we are in an interesting spot. When we started, equity was very cheap in 2018. So you had to explain to founders why credit wasn't a four letter word. And it was very easy to just take equity when there wasn't that much dilution. I think what we found is in this environment, equity is expensive, there's a herd mentality. So a lot of people are on the sidelines and more and more founders are thinking about alternative sources of capital so it's shifted from like why credit to Y upper 90.
1: Can ask you maybe a, a bit of a, uh, just to challenge you a little bit, I don't know if it's a tough question or not. So in the VC model, once you make the investment, you know, money is out and it might or might not return. But part of your underwriting is that, you know, a good percentage will go to zero. That's not how credit works, right? And so if you're backing companies with equity and credit, how do you deal with defaults that are inevitable
0: so everything is harder now like there's no easy money and everything is more difficult so when i think about where we come in as upper 90 we're not the first check you know when you're doing a seed round like you do in your fund and you do really well like nexu somebody needs to come in and say there's a great team there's a great idea and they need money to execute on phase one and that no matter what is usually an equity bet once that happens, the next step often is, I want to then go buy more used cars, or I want to go and do more lending, or I want to do more of what I've done, and then they raise a very big Series A, and that's probably the most elusive round in the entire financing period, and so what we often do is we are introduced to companies that have some capital intensive need, could be lending, it could be inventory, it could be equipment, things that have asset value not venture debt, which is, we believe someone's going to raise more equity in the future. We have to get paid back from the assets we're financing. So we sit down with founders and we'll say, for example, Clutch. Clutch is like the CarMax of Canada, raising a Series A and very good positive unit economics. And they were going to raise a $20 million Series A. We sat down with them and said, what do you need $20 million for? They said, well, $10 million to buy used cars which we will sell online over the next 30, 60, 90 days, and $10 million for hiring people, building technology, and marketing. The second 10 million is clearly purpose-built for the company and not of value to someone else. The first 10 million use cars have clear independent salvage value. So he said, why would you not just raise debt? And he's like, well, the investors that we're talking to will only invest if they can put at least $20 million in. And Jason and I are joking. It's like that's their problem that they raise too much money. That's not your problem. So ultimately, Kanan came into the deal, led the A, you know, we do ninety percent debt, ten percent equity. So we're not leading equity and leading debt. We just want the equity for alignment. And you know, Dana clutch was able to ultimately raise half of the equity, get half of the debt from us, you know, and then has a lot more. Ownership and just optionality of kind of how
1: he wants to grow. So there's plenty of debt funds. There's plenty of equity funds. Not a lot that sit in the middle where you are. And I guess one of the reasons why that doesn't happen is because it's a different skill set, right? Have you built the team internally to make sure you account for very strong credit underwriting, but also the skills that you need for VC, which... We can argue about which ones
0: those are. <laughs> For sure. You know, it's, all you're always, I think, especially with COVID and people not all being together in the same place, you know, teams and culture, you know, we created a, a head of people and culture almost two and a half years ago because how you kind of scale and build your teams is more challenging now. But to answer your question, I think I kind of break it down in a few ways. Number one, when you find a company before their balance sheet is complicated Often, the assets make sense. And somebody's often asked, why would somebody pay you low to mid-teens to finance used cars or generators or a short-term factor, you know, like an Apple receivable or Mundi, which is, you know, financing products that are exported from Mexico and you have 90-day Walmart payment risk. And the question that we often then go back is like, what's the cost of equity? a lot more. And it's permanent. And so I just think no one's really asked the question. So the first thing we said is that founders are just not familiar with credit. They're not familiar with tax. They're not familiar with things like depreciation. And and the second thing that we learned is a lot of lenders, they make their money just from the lending. So we want to say, number one, do we feel like the assets we're financing Provide principal protection, meaning that if the company went bankrupt, our money could be paid back from the assets. You know, then number two is making sure that we're looking for businesses that are in niche areas, either location or industry, which means that they're able to earn more than what they are paying us in debt. So that's called excess spread, you know. I'm able to charge my clients on an annualized basis 23%, and I can easily service upper 90s 14%. And then the third part is I just feel like we want to be aligned with the success of our founders. And I think that's a lot of Jason's ethos and just how I've lived my life. And so if they can go and get bank financing, that's an equity positive event. But if you're just a lender and you have warrants, you might be incentivized to lock up that company for as long as possible at a higher rate of capital because you don't have alignment on the equity side. So I think we said very early, we, we're we not going to build the biggest fund in the world. We're going to build a fund big enough. We can do, you know, 10 to $30 million facilities. And we will make part of our returns from the equity. And we're going to put our money where our mouth is. So we actually invest on the balance sheet not trying to get free warrants. And I think it also changes then if there's a good thing for the company, you're aligned. And also a lot of O'Connor and our team spend time on is how to then add value beyond capital. And so I just think it's a bit of, we want to find companies with good assets and we believe they're creating enterprise value. And I think that's been a big differentiator with companies and how many credit funds have a tech founder as the co-founder. I don't know many, right? They're all like, I worked at some big fund and now I'm launching my own fund. And founders also don't look for things like they have all these hidden fees and hidden terms. And and so I just think you just want to keep it simple,
1: but you only can do that if you have like a different alignment model. And since we're talking a lot about the value of equity, something that we discussed a little bit offline was how do we evaluate the value of equity and especially in credit-driven fintechs, which is where you spend all of your day, where I spend a lot of my day. How are you guys thinking about that, especially given where public comps are today?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we think about this a lot. And I think like probably for starters, it's okay to be more of a specialty fintech, like balance sheet business, but it's probably just better to accept that or be more explicit about that up front versus trying to emulate, you know, a high gross margin recurring revenue software business when when that's not really what you are. So, I mean, I think there's different ways to think about and ultimately value more of a, a balance sheet heavy kind of direct lender versus a vertical software business that has, you know, a, a lending component. And I think that's where we've spent a ton of our time and we were talking about this before, but, you know, finding businesses that kind of appear to be operating systems for a specific small business industry, Often a deskless industry that has, you know, workflow automation, kind of a decomposed ERP as the core product. And, you know, a fintech product is kind of a feature versus the business. You know, those are the types of businesses that we've been spending a lot of time in in categories like trucking and construction and services industries, where, you know, the the lending is not the only part of the business. It's a way to monetize. It's also a way to accelerate customer acquisition and and ultimately kind of deepen that end relationship. So I think it's probably just being more explicitly open up, proud about, like, what do you want to be?
1: It also sounds like a lot of the industry was mispricing these companies before the market, I guess, woke up. Do you think that's accurate? I
0: think so. I mean, one thing that I continue to remind myself is things are never as good as you expect. If you think back to 2021, And are probably never as bad as you expect, which is today. So it's somewhere in the middle. And
1: I'm hearing a a bit of Howard Marks there. (laughs)
0: Maybe, (laughs) you know, he has a lot more experience and, and success, but I just think there's a need for fintech and a big challenge is you have to acquire customers. And I think. If I look at the companies that have had the most success in the upper 90 portfolio, companies like Octane Lending, which we were an early partner in, or companies like Mundi, you know, it's either more of a B2B model like Mundi or Octane, but they've also been able to not have to spend all of their margin on acquiring customers. And so a lot of the other companies that are, you know, doing MCA or offering some new credit card and if you kind of break it down it's just not differentiated enough and so the only way they can grow is by loosening their lending standards or spending more on customer acquisition and I just think you want to try to stay away from those businesses a lot of our competitors on the credit side if you look at who's done the credit for them they like those because if it were, there's a lot of capacity and so I think it's also looking at like the riches are in the niches and so it's finding these smaller opportunities per se but You can't build the biggest fund in the world, which we said is okay. And I think you've also said is okay. Yeah, but like a lot of the banks and the shadow banks and the other specialty lenders have been targeting these credit card fintech companies because there's capacity. But it's unclear to me how those create enduring equity value. And now you're seeing this whole system break down because there is no MEZ and there's no equity for haircut capital. And it just becomes a really challenging balance sheet problem for these businesses.
1: Yeah. And and you mentioned a little bit specialty lenders and just thinking of the industry as a whole. Some fintech companies might try getting started just with credit and say, I'll add technology later, but then they find themselves with this wheel where credit just produces most of their business, they they try to launch software, not as great as they would like. So customers keep using credit, but they can't get out of they themselves being a specialty lender. Do you have any any opinions about this type of companies, this part of the market? You know, do you look at these companies?
0: We try to be disciplined in an ideal world. We're saying, what are companies that we think have a really interesting asset and that could be financing YouTube receivables or mobile app receivables where, you know, maybe also expanding the definition of what people think of fintech as just lending. You know, I think it's just doing tech-enabled financing. And we're financing right now NVIDIA chips for AI companies where their biggest CapEx expenditure is is that. And so... I just think there's a lot of ways to finance components of a business where equity would have really been the primary tool. And I think for the first time, a lot of startups, like the cost of building a startup has come down massively, you know, with AWS and the WeWorks and, you know, off like safe notes like Y Combinator. So, however, I've heard that for the first time ever, the cost of starting a new business in AI is actually going the other way because of the cloud computing energy and the GPU chips. And so I think there's just like all these new businesses that are going to be created where there's some capital intensity. And Jason Gus at Octane said, look, if you're a capital intensive business where we have a complicated capital problem, like check with upper 90. And I guess to answer your question more specifically, because I don't, it's not a sales pitch for upper 90, it's like, if you're a founder, you want to have different type of investors in your balance sheet. And so if you know that you're going to have a credit need, you probably want to bring in a credit partner earlier because it's going to help build the DNA and the processes and make that a core part of your business. If it's not risk management and finance and understanding your costs and your cogs and isn't there from the beginning, it's going to be hard to add it later. So it's kind of what you're saying. Like, I think there's a role for equity and debt, and you should think about those being part of, the lifeblood of the business earlier, you know, sometimes businesses raise just credit and they never really have the equity to like build the business is kind of what you're saying. On the flip side, a lot of people raise equity and then they get credit later. And so it's just the earlier that, and we want to help founders think about this, what is the right balance of equity and debt? And if you know, you're going to need both, I think you're going to be much better off bringing those in earlier together versus sequencing them and kind of deprioritizing one versus the other.
1: Something interesting about your model is that you're working with companies in the U.S., but also companies internationally. You've mentioned a few. What have been kind of the biggest differences, with, or maybe there aren't any, with working with companies in the U.S. versus other parts of the world? Well, there's
0: a few things. One is you really have to work with local partners because you don't know what you don't know. And there's a lot of ways you can get screwed on the credit side. So we really aim to work with firms like yourselves and others like FJ Labs and, you know, other groups that we really feel like have broader domain expertise abroad. That's one. Number two is technology transfers risk in a way I don't think many people think about. So when we first started working with Mundy and for everybody on the call, Mundy helps Mexican small businesses that are exporting their goods to the United States. You now with technology can track when something leaves a factory in Mexico, when it gets on a truck, when it crosses the border, when it gets on the truck in the US, when it is into the Walmart factory and it's within Walmart's purchase order system. Each node is tracked. On average, Walmart or Target or any large distributor will pay net 60 or net 90 back to the Mexican small business. So if you take a step back and said, how could upper 90 lend money and collect from a Mexican small business and get paid in pesos? In this situation, we're actually taking Walmart payment risk in dollars. And so I think that a lot of it is people confuse everything with venture debt and kind of lending to a business that may or may not exist when actually the collateral has been shifted to a much larger pair. And it just kind of smoothing out this working capital problem. So I think it's it's kind of, Understanding what the risk is in this case, while it's domiciled on Latam, the risk is in the US. So I think it's kind of understanding the risks. And to do that, we have a team of almost 24 people. All New York. We're in New York. I live in Providence. We have a few people in Boston. Jason's in Los Angeles. We have a few people West Coast and build guys who are as our other partners in the DC area. So, you know, I think a big part of that is you need to have. A lot of firms that like are our size, you know, we have about a billion and a half dollars across 55 portfolio companies. Some have like five people. And so I just think that you, like a lot of firms were built when things were easy, you know, and there wasn't much friction or problems and workouts and refinancing. So now I think to do this well, like, and to actually add the value to the companies, you need to have enough people like as a credit firm, you know, to ingest 55 loan tapes and give kind of information and insights back to the portfolio company. So I think it's a big part of partnerships, local expertise, but also having like, and that's kind of my background in quant trading, of having the infrastructure to like ingest a loan tape validated against covenants, kind of making sure we have as good of an understanding of the credit on a real time or weekly basis as the company.
1: Do you build a, a real tech stack inside Upper 90? We have,
0: and you know, again, from my experience, everyone often asks us, are you using AI? And, you know, all these buzzwords, the people that would be most successful, you know, from my prior life, the Two Sigmas and the Renaissance and the B. E. Shaw's and all these firms, they just did a lot of little things very well. Like this, it's not rocket science. There's no magical algorithm. There's no magical data set. It's like, are you capturing data? Are you validating that data? It's files complete. Are you comparing it against all your covenants? Are you you know, verifying it against third-party data, benchmarks to make sure there's no fraud. How are you invoicing the correct amount? It's just doing a lot of little things well. And in most businesses, it probably is like, if you look at companies you've invested in that have done well, they've just executed and done a lot of little things well versus some magical
1: piece of the business. It's step-by-step, every day. Correct. Brick-by-brick, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no no doubt about that. I was thinking... VC is a very collaborative game. If you look at your prior life trading, I don't think it's that collaborative. Did you have to unlearn something?
0: It's a very good question. I think in trading, you know, you come up with they call it an alpha, you know, kind of an idea, and it's very proprietary, and you know, non competes are in years, not months. And yeah, it's it's very much not zero sum game, but that proprietary mentality. In the venture world, I agree. There's that collaboration and almost like better to have three or four groups in a deal than one. I think a lot of our LPs, I believe, run some of the most successful venture firms. And I think I've seen that there's going to be, you know, some different financing mechanisms coming. So, I think part of it is that we really built our LP base around founders. And, you know, I I probably spent five years trying to convince Jason to do this with me. And I think we really wanted to look like our customer. Our customer is the founder, you know? And so I think it's when we think about where we fit, like, we don't want to be the lead equity. We want to be, you know, just part of the equity. And, And kind of my pushback is like, how many VCs do you need in a deal? You know, some like I, you know, get a great lead investor. You know, maybe get another group in, and then us. Like I, I sometimes feel like you have six VCs, but if you have another problem that comes up, like all of those six VCs have the same mandate and the same capital. So, you know, why not have two or three VCs in an upper ninety versus four VCs? Right,
1: right. And I guess there's also the argument that if you have fewer, they are going to have a bigger stake in your business. And so they're gonna be highly incentivized to help you when there's a problem. That's what I think. Yeah. I mean, <laughs>
0: you know, but I think a lot of this is just helping founders and that, you know, thinking about their balance sheet setup and, you know, how much should they raise versus how much do the investors want them to raise? And and often like I look back at Octane, you know, we helped them solve a problem where they had three different warehouses and we had to we gave them a parent loan. So instead of going and getting three mezz partners and three inter-creditor agreements, we, we were able to solve a problem at the corporate level. And Jason Gus is a, you know, kind of a savant in finance for fintech. But, you know, what he said is that, hey, as I grow, now I have a resid or I have, you know, my buy box with my bank lenders lets me do power sport financing, but I want to get into RV. A lot of times if you're a company and you want to do something new, even though if it's de-risk, you then have to go and do that with equity. And if you have somebody like us or one of the other credit firms in your balance sheet, it maybe gives you another way to go and experiment without having to use equity, which now is obviously much more tight.
1: So you keep talking about the founders before, before we run out of time. But you mentioned that some of the best companies, they've succeeded partially because of their model, partially because they're going with secular trends. They're not going after a shrinking market. But there's also, they're being led by great people, right? So what have you learned about some of the best founders that maybe you've invested in or maybe that you have just crossed paths with and they might not be part of your portfolio? Sure. You know, as the market
0: has more volatility, you're always second guessing yourself (laughs) a little bit, but we've had a lot of success with second and third time founders who no longer care Who is the investor? It's they know what they need and they want to make sure that they have optionality. So we joke like, who's better off or who's smarter? The group that owns 60% of a hundred million dollar exit or 6% of a billion dollar exit. And I think if you set up your balance sheet in the beginning, kind of in this mix of equity and debt, now, you know, asset light software businesses, this doesn't make sense, but. For a lot of what we're talking about here, fintech and equipment, and what's happening, sustainable investing. There's a lot of capex, working capital, supply chain finance. So I think there's a lot of founders who you know kind of understand that it's like capital has become a commodity. You know, do people really need that much help? I probably get 50 emails a, a month of like open job lists. You know, like from hiring. Like we think capital market services are going to be very valuable to founders. Like how do they think about tax and how do they like all the things we've mentioned. So I think it's founders who have had a couple exits or experiences and are really trying to put together the right capital, not the tech crunch article kind of focus. That's one. Number two is if we get into an early debate around cost of capital and we get punted to like a VP of finance, it's just like we're arguing about the wrong things. It's like, as a founder, it's you're moving fast and you need to capitalize on your business, right? So it's certainty of capital. We see a lot of people that think they're getting cheap capital. It takes four months to get something done with a larger institution and they get retraded and they're in a bind. So speed, then it's flexibility, then cost. And so I think when founders are just thinking about things in that order, because the cost is temporary, it might be like, Fifteen or sixteen percent, but it's for twelve or eighteen months. So I think you you kind of learn a lot in the beginning and kind of what they're getting fixated on, versus kind of what doesn't matter.
1: So before we go, just thinking about the next couple of years, what for both of you, what has you the most excited, for Upper 90 and, and I guess for the industry? Sure. I mean, Connors.
0: Really wanted to buy a lot of these Web three assets at <laughs> discount. This is I'm just kidding. <laughs> so what I'm excited about is we have seen a lot of new businesses be able to get started online. You can create content now in a really low cost way because of YouTube. You can, you know, be your own boss on TikTok or Instagram. You can start your own store on Amazon. You can. St- you know starts selling software apps on Atlassian and NetSuite. So what we're excited about is you have a lot of new platforms, Salesforce that are starting online where there's a whole ecosystem of small businesses starting. And if you look at what's happened offline, there's been, you know, medical rollups in dermatology and RIA is getting rolled up and you name it. You know, restaurants getting rolled up. And so I think that we're still excited about all these new industries online, where there's like acquisition, financing, and roll-ups, and I think we've learned a lot there, and and think there'll be some interesting opportunities. That's one. I think we've really been excited about some of this like supply chain and trade factors. So there's a lot of onshoring, what's happening in Mexico, and you know cross-border trade, where there's a lot of this like these working capitals, like in you know paid on net terms. So I think like that's something that really excites us. And one other area we've been digging into through our relationships with companies like Crusoe of just in the sustainable investing space, there's, you know, we saw a company that's built the leading electric driverless commercial lawnmower because there's a shortage of labor and they're for golf courses and large industrial parks where now they have a big equipment need for a product and their biggest issue is getting working capital. And we can help them, like maybe they have a two-year contract with a big industrial park and we can help finance some of that revenue forward. So I feel like there's gonna be some innovations. Like we've always tried to stay away from things that look and smell like real estate, but people pretend that they're not, you know? And so Ghost Kitchens, which I'm sure you're familiar with, like we never financed them. One of our LPs said, if you ever were to do something with ghost kitchens, like wait till there's some automation and real change, not just like cutting up a basement and calling it something different. So I think that you're going to start seeing like some of these changes. And I think the AI space is, we didn't do anything in DeFi or Web3 or anything like that. But AI is like, it seems like 20 years ago, you might've had like a data center. Now you have these NVIDIA GPU chips. So it feels like there's going to be some type of new equipment need or CapEx need that comes out of this, that a Bernayi could help smooth out in finance. And then I was talking to Jason. One of the things that might exist is like, you know, as companies have all these huge preference stacks and structured rounds. I mean, if you're doing a highly structured equity round, it's basically debt, you know, so it's the same thing. You can call it something else. So there might be situations where founders maybe want to buy back their business you know, where they sold their business and now they want to buy back. So I feel like as an upper 90, it's like helping really think of how to solve some of these challenges for founders where they can be back in charge. So that's like another idea that I just comes to mind. I don't know if you have any thoughts, comment.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's dramatically different from yours. I think it's like the operating system thesis and I feel like it's widening the field for us and so kind of, you know, we revenue software business is solving a problem where fintech is is a way to expand and enhance that. I'd say is one bucket. The second might be like the enabling technologies and fintech products that facilitate that across things like payments, credit, spend management, insurance, and payroll. And, and I think there's you know, credit needs associated with each of those. And, and to Billy's point earlier, I think that kind of tech-enabled software and services roll-ups is something that we've seen a lot of and I suspect you continue to see more, maybe less of I'm acquiring for the sake of acquiring, but more you know I'm a tech-enabled Insurance brokerage and I see an opportunity to buy these mostly, you know, mom and pop businesses that are high margin, but super inefficient and kind of run by people. How do I automate and optimize those and kind of have a one plus one equals three equation? So that, of course, is it's a pretty, you know, valuable tool to help facilitate that. So yeah, I think those are kind of three of the areas and the themes that we're, you know, excited to see more. The one other thing I just you know would speak to a lot of I'm sure your audience are people like yourself running
0: earlier stage funds and you know founders thinking about how to build their business efficiently and a lot of funds that I've come across that their model is seed check, get the company going, and then try to get it to Andreessen Horowitz and get a bigger round and a markup like no one's getting realized returns on this. It's great for marketing and like unrealized d p i but you know how do you go and get returns? And I think if people on this call like, hey, I want to get this company going. And then I want to think about like phase two is maybe bringing some credit in to see if we can do more of it. And once you kind of go down this growth that I'll call path, like it's going to be go big or go home. And I just think, you know, getting a three X return. Someone told me this once, if I played soccer in college at Penn and if you scored one goal a game for the United States or any national team, you would be the greatest player in the history of international soccer. Like everyone's trying to get 10X return. Like if you could get 2X, you're a top decile pun. And so I just think if you rethink about how you achieve that and have more like predictable outcomes and build to profitability faster, it's like this corporate riot finance renaissance. I just think it's all of us need to think differently about how to finance these businesses where capital markets are going to be shut for a while.
1: That, that reminds me, I never bring up Howard Marks, but now this is the second time. One of his memos, it might've been the first one that he ever wrote, talked about exactly that, talked about how they studied the returns of all managers out there, right? And and the top performing ones weren't in the top 10% every year. One year, they might've been top 5%, the other year might've been top 15, one year, maybe top 40%, but they always stayed in the top 50% versus the ones that were chasing to always be 1%. And that led you to some very bad outcomes in some years. So on average, you, you know,
0: when you summarize this, you can say, you know, we are all praising Howard and, you know, he has to (laughs) talk to upper 90. I I love the guy.
1: (laughs) No, amazing. Really, really good stuff. And congrats Um, on your second fund. Thank you. Hope to do more together. No, no doubt. Now that we already have a few, so we, we gotta, we gotta do more. Yes. And I think what's clear from this conversation, AI, no AI, tech, no tech, credit is not going anywhere. Yes. So excited to keep following the journey of you guys.
0: Thank you so much for having us.
1: Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Billy and Connor from Upper 90. If you want more interviews make sure to subscribe follow and leave a review on apple podcasts spotify or whatever you get your shows it helps and means a lot and if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show just drop me a line on twitter or linkedin signing off till next week i'm your host miguel Armasa.